We left off last week in the uh, Lord's Prayer. I was trying to remember. I think the last thing we talked about was things that you can, the ways you can pray. And I said one of the things I think we talked about last was you can complain to the Lord. Is that the last? You remember that? You weren't here. No, sir. Well, I'm not going back and doing the whole thing over. <laughs> So, thinking about prayer, prayer should be continual. It it represents communion, uh, fellowship with God, and this should be true for all believers. Uh, The scriptures offer us uh, encouragement to pray without ceasing. Let me give some verses here and uh, have you read them. Let's see. Patrick, you want to start? How about you taking 1 Thessalonians 5.17... King, Luke 18, verse 1. Scott, if you take Romans 12, 12. And Jimmy, if you'll take Colossians 4, 2. Um, blah, 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 blah. Sam, if you'll take uh, Acts 29, 30 through 31. And you might have to hold that one for a few minutes. Should we go check on somebody? <laughs> uh, Acts 4, 29 through 31. And you hold that one. We'll get to it in a minute. <clears throat> okay, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Is that, was that 1 Thessalonians 5, 17? 16, maybe it's 16. Oh, I'm sorry, that was 18. Oh, 17 is never stop praying. There you go, never stop praying. Pray without ceasing, okay? Luke 18, 1. Now when he was coming down a pebble to show, to show that all time they stopped all to pray not to lose heart. Yeah, Jesus was telling, him, telling his disciples not, not to lose heart, but pray at all times. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Constant in prayer. Colossians 4.2 Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So continual. What, what does that mean? What does that mean? Pray without ceasing. Continual prayer. Constant. Well, mine says continue, not continual. So I, I assume that means... So, does that mean that we're supposed to move up to the um, monastery on the mountain and just pray constantly? Okay. All right. Prayer needs to be intentional. By that we mean that there should be a place, a time, and specifics that we pray for and about. So, 
your schedule may dictate that it <clears throat> occurs at some point during the day. Um, personally, I think the morning is the best time. We usually can have some control over that, even if it's meaning getting up 20 minutes early or 30 minutes early and having, having time of prayer. But if you'll establish a place and a time, then it will become more of a habit. It'll become more of a, a good habit, uh, a normal part of your day, just like sitting down and having breakfast or getting in the car and going to work or whatever, doing whatever you do. So there needs to be intentional prayer. There need to be times and places where we engage God in prayer and that we pray about certain things, specific things. But that's, that's not all that's being talked about here. He's talking without ceasing. So a spirit of prayer... Sam, you work with Craig, right? <clears throat> you guys, uh, <clears throat> you probably talk in the morning in the truck on the way to wherever the first first job is, right? Yeah. Once the day starts, do you is that it? You don't talk anymore the rest of the day? No. You're constantly in conversation, aren't you? You know, you're working. There's a lot of noise. You may not. You may go periods without talking, but you're going to be having conversation throughout the day. You may start a conversation in the morning, and you may add to it as the day goes on, right? Come back to it, circle back to it, or add in new things. And this is, this is a little bit of what we're talking about when we're talking about being in a constant spirit of prayer with God, is that as you go through the day, if you've had an intentional time early in the morning, you've set the tone for the day. You've dealt with things that you need to, then throughout the day, you know, you're remaining in that spirit of prayer, in that communication with God, that spirit of communication that says that, Anytime something comes up, I immediately can just enter into conversation with God. You know, I've already established the connection that morning, right? Just like Sam and Craig going in the mornings, having a conversation, and then continuing throughout the day. So whatever comes your way, whether you run across someone that's, you know, in a different... I mean, you're crossing an accident on the highway as you're driving to work, and you may just breathe a prayer. Lord, you know, be with those people. Help those people or you encounter something that's challenging or difficult for you, Lord, help me. You know, the most effective prayer you can pray is help me. <laughs> Wasn't that Peter's prayer when he was walking on the water and he began to sink after he took his eyes off Jesus? And as he was going down, Lord, it helped me. That's all he had. Jesus reached out and took him. So <clears throat> praying without ceasing means being in that spirit of prayer that's continual throughout the day, recognizing you're in fellowship with the Lord and taking advantage of that. Not just uh, having a, uh, a ritualistic relationship with Christ where you sit down and you know, go through a litany of things you know, in a five-minute prayer and then you're done for this week. Right? Uh, Jerry? Yes, sir. Do you pray for those who are dead and gone? Um, Mark, uh, one time, I remember that a long time ago, he said, you don't pray for the dead, you pray for the living. Well, there's, no, there's not much point in it. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. Um, I mean, I don't know what you would pray for them, you know. I mean, there's, there's nothing that's going to be effectual for them at that point. Their, their eternal destination has been cast already before they die. And, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't agree with, you know, we have some, some religions that would say you can pray them from one state to another. Uh, there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that that's true. Uh, so, uh, 
I, I, I agree with that. I think you need to be praying for the living. There's plenty to pray about here and not be focused on things that you can't change. Right? Well, I, in my heart, I don't know how to answer that. Well, I think it's one thing to think about them. I think it's one thing to uh, certainly to miss them. Um, I don't know that it hurts anything. I guess I could say that. I don't know that it hurts anything other than that it may it may create a false expectation or, or idea in your own mind. Well, that doesn't. Yeah, if it if it's therapeutic for you to pray about them, uh, I don't I don't know that I would uh, poo poo that. What do you think, Paul? I uh, I don't think it probably hurts anything. I don't think it's going to help anything. Either. Right. I mean, that's it. As long as you realize you're not changing anything, it's. I do. Yeah. You know, I I think you know, my prayer would be maybe framed a little differently. If I've got someone that has passed on and I'm praying and I have a, uh, a sadness or I'm thinking about them, then I might be praying, Lord, you, uh, you give me healthy thoughts, you give me healthy uh, attitudes and desires uh, for this person and, and help me translate my burden for them into things that might help people that are alive today that I can do something about. You know, that's a way to kind of turn that burden into something that's more constructive. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Lost my place here where, where we got to. It's, um, so anyway, continual prayer, communion, fellowship with God throughout the day. So where, where and with whom should we pray? Where and with whom should we pray? Quiet place. Well, we might say um, alone. I mean, we're not discounting that it's important for us to pray together, but it's also very important for us to pray alone. What happens is that we can we can kind of hide ourselves. We can fold ourselves into uh, someone else's spiritual life if we're not careful. Uh, for instance, a husband and wife, you know, where one person feels bold enough to pray audibly and the other person doesn't. But that person who doesn't may consider themselves, you know, folding their spiritual being into the other person in an unhealthy way. So I think each of us should be willing to have that conversation with, with the Lord you know, a personal conversation, an intimate conversation. Um, you wouldn't do that with a child, would you? As parents, you wouldn't have one person that does all the communication with that child. You might do that at work, the chain of command. You might say, you know, this person and this person shouldn't have communication. We don't want that. We've got a chain of command. But at home, you don't want that. You've got a mother and a father. You want communication you know, the cross-pollination there with all of them. So, in the same way, the Lord wants the same thing with each of us. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to just depend upon the prayers that are offered corporately as a church gathering or someone else praying on your behalf, right? 
we uh, we should embrace we should approach him and embrace uh, time with him alone. Matthew six six here says that we should move to the inner room. The inner room. When you pray, not heap up empty phrases the Gentiles do. I'm sorry. But when you pray, go into your room, the inner room, and shut the door and pray to your Father. Jesus has given us a model prayer. So there, when we talk about being intentional, there should be a place. Doesn't mean that's the only place you pray, but you have a habitual place, a place that's designated where you know you can go there and that you're going to spend some time with the Lord, where you can go and remove yourself from interruptions. Turn off the phone or put away the phone, the TV. In Jesus' time, what would the inner room been? Probably the same thing it is here. I mean, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a closet or a secret place where you know, no one else is. Like those closets back there on that wall. If you came from the outside of this building. No, 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 no. No, we're just, he's talking about a private place that is out of the way of traffic and disturbances and things like that. It's intentional. Uh, a place where you can go and know that you're not going to be interrupted. Where you can tell others that, you know, I'm going to be, you know, in my house, uh, mine and my wife's bedroom, there's a uh, bathroom off of the, the master bedroom and the master bedroom's like this and the bathroom is in here and my wife has a walk-in closet here and and it's you know <clears throat> if it were my closet <laughs> if it were my closet there'd be enough room in there for a prayer room you know in one side of it or something and you have to be intentional to go there so people aren't just going to pass by and say, oh, I didn't know you were here. You know, it's a place that's far enough away and out of the way to where nobody's going to stumble into it, where you can go. And, and the point is that your focus can be just with God. You're just retiring and going with God. You women can speak to this. You know that when uh, us guys, we're not real sensitive to this, but there are times Someone, I think it was Bob Sheffield, told me the other day, he and Judy just went to North Carolina back over around the holidays yeah. for a couple of weeks. And they live with his son, with their son, uh, and his wife, and grandchildren. And so he told me when they got back, I asked, I said, you have a good trip? And he said, we did. He said, but you know, it's just good for husband and wife to get away together. You know, no matter what age you are, you just need that time away. You don't realize how much having other people around affects your relationship. Mm -hmm. And you don't take the time to be alone. And that's, that's what he's talking about this prayer, is that we don't realize all the things that are going on in the course of the day and all the people that are crossing our paths and all the demands that are placed upon our lives, things that we initiate or others do, how important it is to have that time carved out where we say, you know what? I want to withdraw from the world. I want to withdraw from life for a few minutes, even if it's 15 or 20 minutes, and just spend that time quietly with the Lord and really talk, really talk, share my heart, my concerns, my needs with Him. Uh, so not only alone, but who else? About family. I read something the other day that's really disturbing. Um, 
I'm gonna, I didn't write it down, so I'm going to have to dredge this book back out of my memory. But it's something like uh, 25 or 30% of the people, Christians, name you, um, have uh, I don't know how to qualify it. I don't remember how to qualify it. It was either 25% of Christians, it's only 25% of Christians who have ever had family devotions in their home. Or it could have been very rarely, you know, but it was a very low percentage that one-fourth of the people who claim to be Christians and followers of Christ is all that really ever have any kind of family devotion or prayer time together. And you think about it, you know, you may be faithful in your home to pray over your meals, but... Is that all the time you pray together? And I, I can remember, and listen, I, we weren't as faithful in it as I wish we had been because I know life gets busy and you, you're just going all in different directions. But um, I know how impactful it was with my children, you know, at various times where we prayed specifically about things for them and with them and how that impacted them. And, and so you can't underestimate the value of spending that time. You know, a husband hearing his wife pray, a wife hearing her husband pray specifically for them, children hearing their parents pray, and vice versa. It's, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's irreplaceable um, in binding us together and, and strengthening us, not to mention what we're actually praying about and how God uh, honors that. It's very important to pray for those we love. <clears throat> Uh, in small gatherings, you know, like ours here tonight. Small gatherings. Um, Jesus said, where two or more gathered, what? I'm with you. There I am also. And uh, so it's, it's good, whether it be two or three people gathering together to pray, or whether it be a small group like this comes together. We have Bible studies through our church. You maybe have someone that's an accountability partner that you may meet and have coffee with or eat breakfast. And uh, where there's a group that come together, he says, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And that's where he says, and this was in Matthew 18, 19, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there. Am I among them? Sam, read Acts four twenty nine through thirty one. <laughs> Sam, you, I keep, you might say Sam number one, Sam number one, Sam number two. Old Sam and new Sam. Yeah, okay. Uh, now, Lord, consider that their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miracles, signs and wonders through the name of your Holy Spirit, your Holy Servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Okay. So what's going on there in that uh, section of Acts is that Peter and John, you know, they, they had the encounter um, at the temple where they raised the, the, para, the paralyzed man and uh, enabled him to walk. And, uh, and on the heels of that, the, uh, the officials, the Jewish officials brought him in and interrogated him and told him to stop preaching that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Now, they didn't care about him preaching. They didn't care about him 
you know, they didn't even care about the miracles. What they cared about was that they were preaching that Jesus had resurrected. This was disturbing. They were responsible for killing Jesus. They were responsible for putting him on the cross. They wanted him dead. They wanted him buried. They wanted him out of everybody's hair, including their own. And these guys were out there because they were filled with the Spirit of God. They had seen what they had seen. They were transformed by that. And they were passionately preaching that Jesus had resurrected just like he claimed he would. And this is a, this is a new movement, okay? And so these guys are upset. And they bring them in, threaten them, and say, if you don't stop preaching this, we're going to kill you just like we killed him. It doesn't phase them. Remember, Peter and John said, look, if you think you need to kill us, you do whatever you think you need to do. That's up to you and God. But as for us, we're going to keep speaking the things we've seen and heard. They end up in jail, right? They end up bringing them in. They're, they're, they're intimidating them, bullying them. They send them out, and they go back to the church, and they're telling this little group of followers that, I mean, put yourselves in their, their shoes. They're in Jerusalem. It's not been that long, you know, a little over a month since Jesus was crucified. And, and I mean, the city's still on edge over this. It's not, it wasn't uncommon for people to be crucified in that day. It happened all the time under the Romans. But for Jesus to be crucified, this got everybody's attention. This guy, everybody knew there was nothing guilty about him about anything. He's, he's, he's dead. He's resurrected. Everybody's on edge, including his, his followers. And they all come together. They come back and they say, man, the heat is getting turned up. Okay? We have just been at the Sanhedrin. They have threatened us. They're coming for us just like they came for Jesus. Well, what they do? They immediately gather themselves in prayer. And the prayer that they pray, even before what Sam read to you, is just an incredible uh, prayer. It's one that, you know, you ought to familiarize yourself with it. And it culminates <clears throat> with this group reaching out to God. They're acknowledging that God's in control of everything. They believe and acknowledge that, you know, He's doing great things. And they trust Him implicitly. And they pray. And when they finish praying, the Scripture says that the place where they were gathered together shook like, a, like an earthquake. Maybe it was. Maybe it's akin to what went on in Acts 16 with Philippi and, and Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. But the place shook, and the people were filled with the Spirit, and they were overcome with a boldness to go out and continue proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. They, weren't, they were not deterred by it. So it's a, it's a great gathering, a small gathering nevertheless, but the power that set that bunch on edge just reverberated through them and, and moved them out into the streets. And the persecution continued, and they continued to be scattered, but the gospel went through, uh, forward with great effectiveness. So gatherings, alone, as families, as small gatherings, size doesn't matter in what God may or may not do in and through a gathering of people. Uh, how about worship services? You know, I got burdened here um, some time back uh, in our worship services. <clears throat> just realized that we weren't spending much time in prayer. We were coming together and doing everything but praying as a people, as a part of our worship. And, and so what we did was we changed 
how we approached worship. And we started following the acrostic acts. And we used this to give us a liturgy for our <coughs> worship service. So this is not only a, a pattern for prayer, it's a pattern that will serve you well anytime you pray. It's to know that you approach God through praise, through adoration. You're getting your eyes upward on Him and off the things going on around you. And that follows. Once you get a full view of God, just like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, then it leads you into an acknowledgement of, you know, woe am I. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. The reason he was so aware of that was because he was aware of how great and glorious God was, how righteous God was. So it moved him automatically into a position of confession. And we have to remind ourselves when we confess that God is always faithful for to forgive. He says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, he is faithful to forgive. That means he will not refuse because of what Christ did for us. He will forgive our sin. And when we acknowledge His forgiveness upon our confession, that leads us naturally into a position of thanksgiving, doesn't it? Gratitude. And then we're ready to ask God for things. That's what supplication is. Only after we've moved through that, and as you observe our worship services, we follow that pattern through our service. Number one, because it's a good pattern for prayer. It gives us a framework to pray throughout the service. And... It's a gospel presentation. It's a gospel. It gives us the gospel. So our service bears, you know, years ago when churches were built, they were built with certain shapes. Right, Paul? Most churches, you'll see some of them around here now. If you look at them carefully, how are they shaped? How are they built? They have a cruciform shape to them, don't they? They'll be long and like this be shaped like a cross um, churches for years I'm, I don't know where this was if it was in Europe for years churches painted their doors red so then you walked in you had to be reminded that you had to walk through the blood of Christ in order to enter into the presence of God and be with God's people we don't do that much anymore we build more to aesthetics now than we do with a message toward the gospel so our liturgy, the pattern we follow for our worship on Sunday morning, is designed to point people to the cross. It's designed to point people to the gospel. It's designed to give us a reminder of how we should approach God week in and week out. It's not complicated, but worship's not intended to be complicated. When it gets complicated, it loses its ability to connect with God. And we get caught up, we get caught up in manifesting our own egos and ingenuity rather than approaching God so worship gatherings are a place that we pray um, we, we follow scripture reading we pray that our hearts would receive it understand it, believe it and change it uh, we have moments of silence to reflect upon God, His provision, power, grace and our need for Him the sermon, God is speaking to us through His word and uh, we said last week that was important that God doesn't speak to us necessarily in prayer, audibly, like we pray to Him. Praying is 
us praying to God, God speaks to us through His revealed Word, right? And not only through worship, but also in all places, everywhere. You're not limited where you can pray. You know, being in, um, it's particularly poignant. Uh, I've been in Dakar when, on Friday, where uh, Muslims are gathering for um, times of prayer. And I mean, men would gather by the thousands at this church there in uh, Dakar, not far from where we were ministering in Sacre-Cartois. And one day, uh, two or three of us walked down there just to observe. And I mean, it, it was a sight to see that many men coming together to pray. Uh, even though they're not praying to Yahweh, uh, they gathered to pray. Uh, but um, on the two or three occasions I've been to Turkey, I've had opportunities to go into huge mosques over there that were not occupied at the time. And it's pretty neat to go into those places and to pray to Yahweh instead of what normally goes on in there. Uh, but it also is pretty um, indicting to us as evangelicals to see a building, you know, as big as ours that is filled with people just coming to pray several times a day. And at certain times during the week, it'll be filled with people on their mats praying. We are never separated from God. We, we pray continually and expect God to answer as He promises He will. Why should we pray? Let me give you uh, some more scriptures. Let's see, where do we get to? Sam, were you the last one? Okay. Uh, Bill, if you'll take James 5.16. We've already read 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Luke 22.40, Phil. Luke 22.40. We've already done Luke 18.1. So, Paul, if you'll take Luke 6.28. Luke 6.28. Susan, would you like one? No. Uh, Brian, if you will take John 16.24. Yeah, there's no pressure in here. If you don't want to read, just say... Take somebody else. So can okay. It's no problem. <clears throat> okay, James five sixteen. Therefore, confess your sins of each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Okay. Uh, we read a few minutes ago in First Thessalonians five seventeen that we should pray without ceasing. Phil? And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. Okay. Uh, Luke 18, 1 also told us to pray, to always pray, right? Luke 6, 28. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And here in, in the Lord's Prayer, you know, Luke gives us a different perspective on this. He says that the, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And so what he says in verse 9 here is he said, pray like this. Pray like this. So prayer is a commandment. Prayer is instruction from God. 
He has given us this privilege. We can't approach Him without what Christ has done for us on the cross. If Jesus hasn't died on the cross, we can't approach Him. And, um, but because He has, we are welcomed into His presence to pray. You think about the, the uh, privilege and the opportunity that is. Think about somebody right now around the world. Somebody out of 7.1 or 2 billion people in this world, if they called you right now on your phone, you'd take that call no matter what. Okay? That you'd take that call no matter what. Uh, who would it be? Would it be a, you know, a, a, a political dignitary? A, 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 would it be a celebrity? You know, who would it be? Somebody, if they showed up on your, on your uh, uh, screen right now and it said who it was, you'd take the call. You might hesitate for a minute because you wonder what they're doing calling me, right? But you would. You'd count it an incredible privilege and an opportunity to get to speak to them. This goes on all the time. Uh, when people are traveling, you know, it happens at airports because you'll run into or you'll bump into people that you've seen on the television, they're celebrities, that kind of thing, or they're athletes or things. And there's there's one of two kinds of people always there. There's the people that, you know, just boldly walk up and start talking to them. And then there's the other crowd that is scared to, right? You know what I'm saying? Well, he's telling us that prayer gives us the ability to boldly walk up to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords, to the God who created everything, and to share with Him everything that's on our heart. Why wouldn't you take advantage of that? Why wouldn't you? You know, if you, if you had one of those celebrities, one of those famous people approach you and say, look, here's my card. Call me anytime and let's talk. Or come over here and let's do coffee. You'd feel a lot better about approaching them, wouldn't you? Well, they really do want to talk to me. You don't feel like you're intruding that way. They've, they've invited me, and that's what God has done. He says, pray, ask me, talk to me. So we should do it because He tells us to do it. We should also do it because it increases our joy. Brian, Rome, uh, John 16, 24. Joy will be made complete. Now just think about that for a minute. Let that kind of settle in. All of us want to be joyful, don't we? We, we like joy. We don't want to be non-joyful. We don't want to be sad and, and perplexed and in despair. He says prayer is a means by which our joy is made complete, made full. So why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we take advantage of that? You go to the doctor and say, Doctor, I feel bad. And he says, well, here's some tablets. Take these tablets. You don't ask him, do you? You don't question him about it. You may go home and do a little research on the Internet and say, this looks like it'll be safe. I'm going to take them. They're going to make me happy. Happy pills, whatever they are. You know? But God says, look, prayer, prayer brings joy into your life. It completes joy in your life. So why wouldn't we take advantage of it? You know, you think about the things that God's promised us. And how we're our own worst enemy. And that either we don't believe Him or we just refuse to do it for some reason. He's promised us so much that we don't take advantage of. When we intentionally convey our message to the Father, the Spirit moves in us with joy. And so if your joy is weak or non-existent, it may be due to a lack of prayer. Prayer is also our privilege. We've talked about that. God runs all of creation with infinite wisdom. 
We're not informing him of things he doesn't know. We're not informing him of things he doesn't know. That would, that would mean that God is not all-knowing, right? As I said Sunday, prayer is this privilege that we have that we can approach him and, and speak whatever's on our heart and mind, which is in its own way therapeutic. But Scripture also tells us that, that God is mysteriously moved by our prayers, that even being a sovereign God, that our prayers have purpose with Him. I don't understand how to explain that. I don't know how to reconcile the fact that God is sovereign, knows everything, is in control of everything. There's not one molecule in all the creation that, that is moving outside of God's will. And yet, He says that over here, Men, women can call upon him and pray to him, and he responds to that. And that he is moved by that to move on our behalf. I don't know how it works together, but Scripture clearly tells us it does. <clears throat> Prayer causes things to happen. James 4.2 says, You do not have because you do not ask. Prayer glorifies the Father and the Son. We pray because depending upon God, the Father in the name of Jesus glorifies both of them. It glorifies the Son. Our weakness means that we have to be devoted to their strength. And as we admit and own our weakness and dependency upon them, it increases, it, it doesn't increase, it, it manifests the glory of God. It reflects the glory of God, displays the glory of God. He is honored in this way okay let's actually look at this short little prayer that we all probably know by heart by rote it begins with our father you know even the lost world senses a need to pray um well this past week we just had an illustration of that on sunday with uh, kobe bryant's helicopter and and you know when someone Famous and likable and all those kind of things happens. Everybody is gripped by that. Everybody is um, stunned and devastated by that, that suddenness of it all. It happens every day in all over the world, doesn't it? But sometimes someone of high profile, it happens to, and it really, it really grips us at that time. But you'll hear people everywhere, you know, talking about promising to pray People who probably, you know, have no idea who God is. And most of their lives, they could care less. But they will still talk about, you know, his family's in our prayers or you're in our prayers. Um, so everyone has an appreciation for that. Does God entertain the prayers of the lost world? So people who don't know God, who are moved to sadness by what they see playing out in front of them. They say, you know, we're, we're going to pray for you. Does God hear their prayers? This is kind of back to Ken's question about praying for those who are dead, right? Mm -hmm. Go ahead. He hears them. You think, yeah, he hears them. Or does he? How does he hear them? Yeah, he hears them because he's all he's present everywhere, right? But they're not they're not covered in the blood of Jesus. That's right. 
Sam, look up Psalm 66, 18. Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I have cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Sin. Sin. What's a lost person doing? Yeah, I mean, they, they have chosen to cling to their sin, their rebellion against God over listening and heeding the gospel and, and being obedient to it. In the same way, we who know Christ, I'm a firm believer that if we have sin, listen carefully, I'm not talking about, we, we've all sinned today, right? We've probably sinned since we came into this room. Sin plagues us. But I'm talking about a sin that, that we've placed on a throne in our lives. It's a sin that we're protecting. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I'm hiding it, thinking I'm hiding it from God. I'm preserving it. You can have everything else, but you can't have this. Okay? That's what he means when he says, I have cherished or I have regarded my iniquity. I've given it prominence in my life. And I'm, I'm guarding it. I know it's there. I know it's there. But I'm not going to give it up. God says, I don't hear your prayer. I don't hear your prayer until you come and confess that. When you come and put that on the altar, then I'm all ears again. But I'm not going to regard, if you don't regard me, if you're not regarding me, why should I regard you? In any prayer that you utter, the only prayer I'm going to hear is a prayer of confession and repentance over that sin, right? And so for the lost person, it's the same thing. Until they come to God broken by their sin and acknowledging that Christ, yes, I repent and turn to Christ and what he has done for me, then it opens up. The floodgates open up. God says, welcome home. You know, we have much to talk about. Now, again, I, I make this clear. I'm not talking about a sin that you stumble and fall and sin tomorrow or say something you shouldn't have said or do something you shouldn't have said, even an unconfessed sin. I'm talking about a sin that you have especially ignored and protected in your life, okay? Um, that you won't let God get near. God says, okay, we got nothing to talk about until we can talk about this. Right? What was that scripture? Psalm 66, 18. Have no other gods before me, but clearly that's putting someone before God. So God wants to hear our prayers. God's ready to hear our prayers, but he will not accept our prayers on just any terms. That's what I'm saying. Okay, that's why he doesn't hear. He doesn't hear the prayers of those that are coming under different circumstances. If they're trying to come to God through any other means other than Christ, he's not going to regard that prayer. That's scripture is very clear about that. Okay, six parts to this prayer. First one. Hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. What does hallowed mean? 
How how it how it be your name? Sacred holy. Sacred holy. Distinct. Yeah. What do you think he's saying there? Were we supposed to just say holy, holy, holy is your name? Yeah, I mean, yes. He is pleading with God to make, he is pleading, Jesus is saying we should plead with God to make his name holy, to make it clear that it's holy, even in us, even through us, around us. Cause your name to be hallowed. Cause your name to be made holy. Now, how many people do you think, how often does that happen in today's world? And you think about Jesus has been asked by his disciples, teach us to pray. And he says right out of the gate, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Make your name holy in us, through us, in our world. Our world needs to see how holy you are. That's not the way our world prays, is it? That's not the way even a lot of Christians pray. Most of the time we're praying, Lord, make my life easier. Make, give me this, give me that. Do this for me and do that for me. It's not that he doesn't want to do those things, but we're beginning with those things and we never get to how would be your name, right? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, it's more of act in a way that makes it clear how holy you are. Hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed among us all. May we see it. May it be clear. We're praying for God to manifest his greatness, his glory, just like he did with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Or just like Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration. He showed us his glory. Moses asked for this in Exodus, didn't he? After the, after the golden calf incident. And, and God, Moses was afraid God was not going to go with Israel to the promised land because he was angry at Israel because they had broken his law and disobeyed him. And Moses said, Lord, if you're not going, you know, just kill me. I don't want to go. And then he later he said, God said, okay, I'm going. And Moses said, well, let me see your glory. And God said, you can't see my glory. It'll kill you. But I'm going to pass by. You stand in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand over you. And you can see the afterglow. You can see my behind after I've moved through. You can't see the frontal glory. It's too much. Some of that going on here in this prayer. Show us. Show us your glory. Make your glory known to us. It's a plea that God would do something about His name. It's a plea that God would cause His name to be hallowed in the hearts of all people. Hallowed means sanctified. So it's a prayer that God's name would be set apart in people's hearts and minds and lives. They, that they will recognize Him as infinitely great, beautiful, and valuable as He really is. And this is the first thing that we're instructed to pray for. Second thing He prays for... Your kingdom come. You want to take a shot at that one, anyone? 
But he's not asking for God's universal kingdom to be exercised here because that already is taking place all the time, right? God's sovereign. God's, God's in control of everything. So what's he praying for? Yes, Yeah, I mean, think of it as his salvation reigning. You know, this this new this new uh, this new program, if we can call it that, of his kingdom. You know, when Jesus came, he said, "What kingdom of God is at hand?" Right? A new day's here. The promise that God has been giving you forever has arrived in me. I've come to change. The economy, the spiritual economy. And so what he did on the cross and what's happening, and literally it had been going on before that because there were people in the Old Testament putting their faith and trust in what God was going to do through Jesus even before they recognized the full extent of it, right? David, we just talked about David, he's one of them. He was looking forward to the day. Hebrews tells us these, these old patriarchs were looking forward to what God was doing. They believed and trusted him even though they didn't have the benefit of looking at the actual thing like you and I do. We look back in history at what's already been done. They were looking ahead very dimly, murky waters based on what God was saying and believing him anyway. So they were believing on what Christ would do in the future. We look back and see what Christ has done in the past but it's the same faith and the same object that's redeeming all of us. So God's kingdom has been coming into fruition ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. It's not, it's, so it's here, but it's not already complete, is it? It's being completed. And one day it'll be fully completed when Christ returns. So we're praying your kingdom come. It's not praying for God's rule through Christ's enthronement to come. It begins with an understanding that God has promised a kingdom and that He Himself is a sovereign King. His incarnation and saving work, death, burial, resurrection, have inaugurated a reign and Jesus began a kingdom through this redemptive work. And it's a kingdom that is not fully consummated yet, but it will be when Christ ultimately returns. So the kingdom has come, but the kingdom has not fully come. Yeah. What what did John say at the end of Revelation? I mean, he gets through with this incredible this incredible vision that God gives him about what's going to happen when and he gets down to you know chapters twenty and we've got the judgment, the white throne judgment. Chapter twenty one and twenty two, you've got the new Jerusalem coming down. You've got the new heavens and the new earth. It's just phenomenal. I mean, and, and what we see there is phenomenal in our hum, puny human language. Who knows what it actually is? I mean, John took the best that he could find in, in the language, human language and tried to communicate it, but there's no way he does justice to it, right? But he gets to the end of that, and he says, God says, whoever takes away from this book or whoever adds to this book will get the punishments of this book, you know? He finishes up and he gets ready to put an exclamation point on it. And he says what? Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I mean, he gets a vision of this and he says, come now. Let's have the fullness of that kingdom now. And so 
what he's saying here is that should be the longing desire of our hearts, I think, is for the fulfillment, the consummation of the kingdom that we see glimpses of now, right? We see glimpses in ourselves, right? We, we have glimpses of them. I know, I believe, I'm expecting, I'm hoping, but it's not complete yet. So there's still a little uncertainty. There's still a little hesitation. There's, what's it going to be like? Come quickly, Lord. Give us, give us the full thing. So praying for that. The greatest opposition to Christ's kingdom and the greatest opposition to Christian living is the kingdom of the present world, isn't it? Which Satan rules. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's asking and pleading that his will may become our will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will, your desires, your objectives be done in me as it's in heaven, even now. Now you got to think about that one, right? You got to think about that one a little bit. What if he said, okay? Do we really want that? <laughs> Most of us want it, but we want it later, you know, a little later. I still got some things I need to do here. You ever met any of those people that, you know, you share the gospel with and they say, yeah, I want to. I want to go to heaven someday, but I got. I got. I got some other wild oats I want to sow first. I'll get back to you on it. Yeah. And there, there's a family in California tonight that their lives have forever been changed in the blink of an eye. A 41 year old man that would have thought he probably had another 40 years to live, and a 13 year old daughter that hadn't even hit. Hadn't even begun to live. And just like that, it's over. And there's no changing it. There's no going back. The world doesn't think that way until it's too late. And then they only think about, well, that just, that's just them. It doesn't apply to me. Your will be done. God's will is what? His will is that we come, that we know him, that we be in communion with him. That we be a part of this new creation that he's making. God's will is a difficult concept for us in many ways. Uh, John MacArthur said it this way. He said, God is sovereign, but he is not independently deterministic. Looking at God's sovereignty in a fatalistic way, thinking, what shall we all, what shall we, what will we, what will be, will be. How's that? That got it. Absolutely destroys prayer, uh, faithful prayer and faithful obedience of every sort. He's saying, what if we have that attitude, God's sovereign, so that just means whatever will be, will be. Then that destroys faithful prayer and faithful obedience of every sort. That's not a high view of the sovereignty of God, but a destructive and unbiblical view of it. This is not the divine sovereignty the Bible teaches. It is not God's will that, that people die. Or why would Christ have come to destroy death? It is not God's will that people go to hell. So, or why would he have, his only son had taken the penalty of sin upon himself so that men might escape hell? The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That sin exists on earth and causes such horrible consequences is not evidence of God's will, but of his patience in allowing more opportunity for men to turn to him for salvation. You ever thought about that? 
The fact that we're living in a world where bad things are happening all the time is actually evidence of God's patience in pleading with us to turn to him before it's everlastingly too late because we live in a broken world that deserves judgment. Give us this day our daily bread. Laborers were typical, typically worked one day for a day's pay, so you got paid every day. <clears throat> so if there was work, you know, you get work, you go work, you get a wage, whatever that was. And there wasn't enough money. It was a low economy, a low monetary worth economy. So what a person made, a day laborer like that, would make barely enough to, to meet his needs for the day, if that much. You know, there wasn't any money to save. There wasn't any money to put aside for vacation and all that kind of stuff. He might be able to put some aside for a rainy day in case he didn't get to work one day. But what he earned that day probably went to buy food enough for that day. So this prayer takes on an entirely different meaning when we get out of our Western culture mindset and get back in that ancient time mindset, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Praying for your daily bread. Praying, God, that you'll give me the opportunity to find something to do today to earn a, a day's wage so I can buy food for me and for my family so that we can survive today. Sure they do. Right. But most of us don't think of it that way. I mean, you know, we're, we don't, we're not having... What I'm getting at here is because of the tightness of the society they lived in, there was an absolute dependence upon the provision of God. In today's world, we don't sense that urgency because for most, we don't live day to day. We don't live hand to mouth. We, you know, we're going to make it a while. You know, we live here in an area where transitioning from one job to the next is common, isn't it, for most folks? May not be comfortable, may not be what we want, but we do it and it's not really life-threatening, is it? What he's trying to get across here is the huge dependence that we have to practice in this prayer. Lord, I'm depending upon you for everything I have today. And if, it, if I don't have it, you know, I can't get it. If I have it, it all comes from you. Hopefully we Christians are disciplined enough in that and understand that enough that we see our lives through that prism. But sometimes our culture works against us in that way. Give us this day our daily bread. It was an urgent, desperate prayer. Followers learn to trust God for real needs. All right, I'm going to finish these two up. Take me two minutes. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Does this statement turn forgiveness into a work? Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Does that mean that I forgive King and therefore when I forgive King, God will forgive me? Is that what he's saying? No, it's, it's a little bit different than that. He's saying... As I have forgiven you, as I have forgiven you, what did it take for me to forgive you? What have I forgiven you of? That attitude of forgiveness that you see in me and that you have experienced in yourself 
is an attitude that needs to characterize your interaction with other people. And if it's not, then you probably never really experienced my forgiveness. That makes sense? When you've experienced my forgiveness in all of its grandness and greatness, you've recognized how much you needed that forgiveness, then you're much more apt to share forgiveness with others in the same way. That's pretty big. And then the last one, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is probably a figure of speech. Probably a figure of speech. Lead us not into temptation. Sounds like, is he implying that God leads us into temptation? Um, he's probably a, um, a figure of speech. For instance, lead us not equals lead us away from temptation. So it's saying the opposite. You know, like we might say, um, mm, not a few of something. You know, the people came and there was, there was not a few of them. What does that mean? That means there were many, right? Uh, or if we said, uh, this is no easy task, we'd be saying this is actually a hard task, right? And that's kind of what seems to be happening here. Lead us not to temptation when in fact he's saying, lead us away from temptation. The, the Amplified says, lead us away from situations where we are willing to have the opportunity. Right, that's right. Lead us away. He's praying, lead us away. Lead us not into temptation. Makes it sound like God could lead us into temptation. He doesn't. He couldn't. Lead us away from temptation. This leads us into situations where we'll be protected and kept righteous. Questions? We did it. We're going to talk about fasting next week. Fasting. Fasting.